Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Who you are determines what you do. Let me say that one more time. Who you are determines what you do. I think we often take this point for granted that how we act is really shaped by who we think we are. Perhaps one way to illustrate this point is with the story of Jody Roberts. Jody was a 26-year-old crime reporter for the Tacoma News Tribune when in the summer of 1985 she suddenly disappeared. There were a couple of possible theories for her disappearance at that time. Uh, friends and co-workers noticed that Judy had, uh, Jody rather, had been rather sullen in the weeks leading up to her disappearance. She had stopped taking care of herself. She had grown rather irritable. And not only this, but shortly after her disappearance, she abruptly entered, emptied her bank account, which was the last documented evidence of her whereabouts. Based on this, many suppose that Jody had simply grown tired of her life and run away. It soon discovered that she was uh, falling behind in some of her bills. She had been seeking counseling for depression. Uh, so maybe she had decided to escape whatever was troubling her by picking up and starting a new life somewhere else. Still, there were some things that didn't quite seem to fit that narrative. A visit to her home revealed a house left in total disarray. Uh, but perhaps even more significant than this was the fact that she had not only left her cat behind, but she had left him outside. And that seemed strange to those who knew her because Jody never let the cat outside. This led some to speculate that maybe she had started to cover a case and got in too deep. She had been fascinated with a series of murders known as the Green River Murders. Some thought perhaps she had stumbled across some new line of evidence or perhaps she had tried to go undercover and had gotten into trouble. Perhaps she had been abducted or even murdered. In the end, no one really knew. And that's how things remained for about 12 years. Then in 1997, a Seattle detective looking into old missing person cases started to look into what had happened to Jody. After exploring a couple of promising leads, local news outlets began to cover the story, and someone soon came forward saying that they recognized Jody as one of her co-workers from up in Alaska, but that she had known her as Jane D. It was soon discovered what had happened to Jody. Within days of her disappearance, Jody had turned up at a shopping mall in Aurora, Colorado. In the words of the Tacoma News Tribune, she stopped at the security office with a problem. She didn't know her name. She didn't know how she got to the mall. She was soon taken to a mental health facility where, after undergoing some evaluations, it was determined that she had suffered from an episode of psychogenic amnesia, which is a kind of amnesia usually triggered by a life-threatening situation. All of a sudden, Jody had no recollection of the previous 26 years of her life. 
Several therapists tried and failed to restore Jody's memory. And so in September of that year, Jody decided to start a new life under the name Jane D. She enrolled at the University of Denver. She earned a degree in Russian and began waiting tables. By July of 89, she had gotten a job waiting tables in Alaska. She got married, gave birth to two sets of twins, and eventually began to work as a web page designer. By the time the Seattle detective that broke the case open got in contact with her 12 years later, Jody Roberts was long gone. The only life that she had ever known was the one that she had lived as Jane D. In the weeks that followed, Jody would be reunited with her family and friends, but the memory of who she was would never return. They were all essentially strangers to her now, and so she determined not to return to her old way of life. Instead, she would remain in Alaska. She would remain Jane D., since as far as she was concerned, that was who she had now become. Again, it's a story that strongly illustrates the point. Who you think you are determines what you do. And it's one that I think illustrates quite nicely the point that Paul is trying to communicate to us in this morning's passage as well. These three verses, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, form what is, I think, the theological climax of this particular section of 1 Corinthians. If you recall, I said that there are two sets of questions that Paul is attempting to answer in this letter. First, there are a set of questions that the Corinthians have written to Paul asking about. And then second, there are a set of questions that the Corinthians haven't asked about, a set of questions that they think they've already answered sufficiently, but which they've answered wrongly. And I've said that in this particular section of Corinthians, Paul is addressing the second set of questions. He's addressing the issues that they think they've already answered, but which they've answered wrongly. This section can, in turn, be broken down into two basic sections of its own. Uh, the first section occurs in chapters 1 through 4, where Paul confronts the factionalism that's broken out in Corinth in his absence, and which is, in turn, leading the Corinthians to question his authority. Then, starting in chapter 5, and continuing through the end of chapter 6, Paul addresses a rather eclectic range of problems that he's heard about um, that are taking place in Corinth. First, there's the Corinthians' application of grace and their willingness to remain in fellowship with a man living with his stepmother uh, because of this misapplication of grace. That occurs in chapter 5. Second, there's the Corinthians' propensity to settle their disputes before the secular courts. Basically, uh, they like to sue one another. Paul addresses this in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Finally, third, and, and we haven't gotten to this section just yet, uh, but the Corinthians seem susceptible to sexual immorality. Although susceptible perhaps isn't the word. After all, it doesn't seem as if this is coming from a place of vulnerability, as if they knew it was wrong and they just couldn't help themselves. Rather, it would seem that they think there's nothing so terrible about sexual immorality. And so they're engaging in it freely. And they're engaging in it with prostitutes, specifically. Uh, presumably not all of their members, of course, but some. Some are going and visiting prostitutes, and they appear to think that this is all quite consistent with the gospel. 
We'll dig further into why they think this next week when we get into verses 12 to 20 of chapter 6. In chapter 7, Paul will finally turn his attention to the questions that they've written to him about, but first, he wants to address these practices, which are quite obviously some very serious misapplications of the gospel first. Now, there are theological elements to all of Paul's responses in this section. Meaning, Paul confronts each of these errors by explaining how everyone is inconsistent with Christian doctrine. Uh, For instance, their willingness to remain in fellowship with the incestuous church member not only reflects a, a misunderstanding of the concept of grace, but Paul hints it also reflects a deficient understanding of God's presence among his people. Had they understood these things, then far from boasting over their association with this man, they'd be mourning over it, and they would evict him from their presence. Likewise, their willingness to take their grievances before the secular courts reflects a deficient understanding or at least misapplication of their eschatological destiny. Basically, had they made the proper connections between what they will be in the future and what this means about how they should be interacting with the world today, then they wouldn't be taking their disputes before the courts. Instead, they'd attempt to settle them internally. They'd realize, hey, one day we're going to judge angels. Not only that, but God has given us everything necessary to discern these matters, both in Christ and through the Holy Spirit. So let's settle these matters ourselves. The same thing is going to occur in our next passage as well. Paul is going to continue to build on this notion of unity with Christ that we began to discuss back in chapter 5. And he's going to tie this in with the concept of the resurrection in order to make the point you should not join yourself to a prostitute since your body belongs to the Lord. There are theological elements in all of this. But of all the various doctrines that Paul is bringing to the surface here, there's one central concept that ties them all together. And it comes out right here in verses 9 through 11. And that concept is what you are in Christ. Or perhaps better stated, what you have become in Christ should shape what you do. You see, it would appear that Jody Roberts and the Corinthians have something in common. And that's the fact that they've forgotten who they are. Or maybe you could say that for the Corinthians, they haven't forgotten enough. They're supposed to be like Jane D. There's this former manner of life that they're supposed to have forgotten and left behind. They've become something new in Christ, but instead of embracing this identity, they're going back to their former way of life. They're not forgetting who they were, They're forgetting what they've become. They're forgetting what they are. And it's really because of this disconnect, this failure to remember their present identity in this tendency to slip into the past and think of themselves according to what they used to be, that the Corinthians are struggling so much to properly identify the answer to the dilemmas they're facing. There's a sense in which I think you could almost say that the concept behind these three verses is really the key concept for this entire letter. 
Remember what you've become, because that will determine what you do. If the Corinthians had simply grasped that reality, then they probably could have inferred many of the answers that Paul is about to spell out for them without his help. This raises the question, what have the Corinthians become? Who are they? What has happened to them? This is a question that's not only relevant for the Corinthians, it's relevant for us as well. As I mentioned just about every week, I've entitled this series in 1 Corinthians, Christ in the World, because in this letter, Paul shows us how the Christian is supposed to engage with the world, what it looks like practically to be in the world without being of the world. This is, of course, what so many of us want to know. How do we live out our faith in a world that's fallen and tarnished by the corruption of sin? There are no doubt a number of moral dilemmas that we encounter as we do this. Well, so much of the answer to this question really comes back to this point. Remember what you've become. Remember who you are in Christ. Because if you can get a clear picture of that, then no matter what the circumstances, you will have a pretty good reference point to work with. By knowing both where you are and where you're going, what your destination is, you will gain a pretty clear direction of what... uh, direction you should take in in really any circumstance. So who are we? What's happened to us? Uh, This is a question that we're going to explore over the next two weeks from 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11, and we're going to begin by reading this passage in its context. Uh, The passage, once again, is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, but we're going to start at the end of chapter 5. We're going to start in chapter 5 verse 9 uh, to gain some momentum here and hear what Paul is writing in its context. Uh, Of course, in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul has just told the Corinthians to separate from the man uh, involved in this incestuous relationship. And as he clarifies a point that he made in a previous letter on this subject, he says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I read this passage in its context because I think the context is absolutely critical to understanding this text. This is a commonly misunderstood passage. We talk about how to engage the world as Christians, how to live out our faith in a world that's fallen and tarnished by the corruption of sin. And as we read this text, I think it is immediately apparent to all of us that it has something very relevant to say about how we're supposed to engage with the world around us. Of course, I don't think I have to tell you that this past month was Pride Month. Between companies changing their color schemes on their corporate logos on social media to nationwide coverage of various gay pride celebrations across the country to television channels and streaming services advertising their LGBTQ content, it's rather obvious our society doesn't just accept or tolerate homosexuality, it celebrates it. And increasingly, this appears to be the cultural expectation for all people. In the not-too-distant past, homosexuality was so thoroughly rejected by our society that what homosexuals primarily fought for was the notion of toleration. Basically, they fought for the right not to be punished for their sexual preferences. They fought for equal treatment under the law, even for the right to be able to live out their way of life publicly without being harassed for it. And as gay rights activists made more and more progress in this area, the cultural expectation gradually shifted to where it was expected that even if you didn't agree with homosexuality, even if you thought it was wrong, then you would at least still tolerate it. Meaning it wasn't expected that you would endorse homosexuality, but still you wouldn't try to get in the way of it either. You wouldn't fight for legislation legalizing, or fight against legislation legalizing gay marriage, for instance. Perhaps you wouldn't even voice your opposition to it. Basically, you were entitled to your belief so long as you kept it to yourself. However, we seem to be blowing right past that standard as a society. Now the expectation doesn't just seem to be that you must be willing to tolerate such behaviors if you want to be an accepted member of modern society. Instead, you must be willing to approve of it and even celebrate it. I was thinking of this recently while my wife and I were watching a show on Hulu. Uh, All throughout June, Hulu has been very intentional in running ads showcasing its LGBTQ content for Pride Month. And I remember commenting to my wife how strange it seems that a major streaming service like Hulu would feel the need to so aggressively push its LGBTQ content given the fact that practicing homosexuals make up such a small fraction of our society. I mean, I might understand why Homosexuals might be interested in viewing some of this content in celebration of Pride Month, but presumably that's only a fraction of their subscribers, so why push it so hard? And the only answer I could come up with is that there's this expectation 
that heterosexuals are interested in celebrating Pride Month as well. Or at least they should be. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but regardless, this seems to be the growing sentiment in our culture that you not only tolerate homosexuality, but you celebrate it. And if you don't celebrate it, if you don't voice your approval of this behavior, then you're a narrow-minded bigot who shouldn't be allowed a place in modern society. To put it in the words of Generation Z, uh, you need to be canceled. I would imagine that many of you feel this pressure in any number of ways. And then Paul drops this bomb. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You want to talk about a culturally unpopular idea. Right here, Paul lumps homosexuality in with stealing, drunkenness, and extortion. And it gets even better. Over in 1 Timothy 1, he writes a similar list, only there he lumps it in with lying and kidnapping or even slavery, depending on how you translate the word, and murder. He says, 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, Now you know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Friends, this is not going to win you any points culturally to begin to make any kind of a connection between homosexuality and kidnapping or even murder. And most especially given the nature of this um, behavior, lifestyle, way of thinking, it's almost hard to define because when you talk to people who experience same-sex attraction, you can ask them when they chose to be a homosexual and what they'll often tell you is, I didn't choose it. Believe me, I never decided to be attracted to the opposite sex. It's just the way I am. It's something I've felt for as long as I can remember. They say it would be like someone asking a heterosexual, when did you choose to be attracted to the opposite sex? That's not something that I think any of us would ever say we chose. It's just who we are. It's something we experience instinctively. So to come and say to someone who experiences these feelings, homosexuals shall not enter the kingdom of heaven is not only incredibly crushing because it seems like it's essentially saying salvation is impossible for you since it would require them to deny something they feel they have no control over. But then to add on top of that, to make a connection between these desires and something as heinous and clearly volitional as murder is to come off as almost hateful and incredibly ignorant. And of course, more and more, this is precisely how the world tends to feel about Christianity's take on this topic. And here's what guys like Paul have to say on this issue. And it declares, what a hateful and or ignorant religion. 
Either these people don't understand how homosexuality works because they're treating it like it's some kind of volitional choice when obviously it isn't, or even worse, they do understand how it works, and they're categorically condemning an entire class of people over something that they have absolutely no control over. They think that to say homosexuals cannot enter the kingdom of heaven is like saying you can't enter into heaven if you have blue eyes or if you have black skin. They think it's like saying you can't enter into heaven if you're a woman or if you're left-handed. It's simply condemning a person for who they are over something they have no control over. As the cultural mood towards this topic shifts, and I think as more and more Christians begin to understand this topic as well, I think we tend to become a lot more reflective as we interact with passages like this one. After all, we understand that if Paul is saying that homosexuality is a sin, then we can't back down. That's like what we saw at the end of uh, chapter 4. We must heed his instruction, regardless of what anyone else says, because like it or not, Paul and the apostles, they are our spiritual fathers. Everything we know about the faith, we've received through them. So we don't exactly get to pick and choose which part of their instruction we're going to follow. We must follow all of it. Still, it's enough to make us pause and ask ourselves, are they saying, are they actually saying what I think they're saying? Because if they're not, then only is, not only is it not worth the suffering we'd have to endure to, in, to hold this position, but even more importantly, we'd be undermining the gospel by proclaiming a threshold for salvation that simply isn't there. There are a few different ways that Christians uh, tend to approach this topic. And I may be using that word somewhat loosely when I say this, because uh, I think some of this probably falls outside the bounds of Christianity, perhaps. But uh, on the one extreme, you have those who attempt to say that homosexuality is not actually a sin, that Paul never intended for it to be read that way, or that when he wrote these passages, he didn't have any kind of a conception of a monogamous homosexual relationship that was really homosexual adultery or even effeminacy that he was condemning more than the sexual act itself. And just so you know, there's really no basis for this thought whatsoever in the text. You've got to jump through a lot of hoops to make passages like this one say things that clearly Paul didn't intend to say to arrive at that position. Not only was homosexuality pretty clearly condemned as a sin in the Old Testament in places like Genesis 19 and Leviticus 20, 13, meaning not only is Paul writing this passage in light of a theological background that condemns homosexuality, but if anything, Paul even seems to be going out of his way in this particular passage to cover all his bases in condemning every form of homosexuality. Not to be overly graphic here, but this phrase translated as men who practice homosexuality in the ESV, it's actually made up of two different words in the Greek. The first word is malakos, which is sometimes translated as effeminate, but to put the matter rather plainly was also sometimes used to refer to the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. The second word, arsenakoites, 
means basically one who has intercourse with males. You put the two concepts together, and Paul seems to be going out of his way to say that this applies to either partner in the homosexual relationship. And the reason that matters is because you sometimes, at this day and age, in this day and age, you sometimes had men who sold themselves off as prostitutes. Essentially, they would sell themselves off for the sexual pleasure of other men. In fact, that's even how some translations translate this word malakos. They translate it as male prostitutes. And what Paul is saying is that whether you're an active participant or not, whether this is something you're doing because you like to do it or not, it's still sin. He's going out of his way to say that every form of this kind of activity is sin. You add this to the other statements that he makes in places like 1 Timothy 1, or again in Romans 1, and this idea that Paul didn't condemn homosexuality is really just laughable. Whether you want to say Paul was a bigot or not, what you absolutely cannot say is that he didn't think homosexuality is a sin. Pretty clearly he did. On the other end of the spectrum, you have some Christians who dig in and say that homosexuality is entirely volitional, meaning that uh, contrary to what homosexuals may claim, there is no such thing as an innate homosexual desire. Basically, they recognize the implications of those who say it is an innate desire, and they counter by saying either you're lying or you're mistaken, because if the Bible says this is sin, then it 100% must be a choice. And then you have a spectrum of positions that lie in between. You have those that say it is an innate desire, but it can be changed. Meaning regardless of whether or not a person is born with a propensity for this type of sin, they can repent of it. And then there are those who say it is an innate desire, and it can't be changed. But that's okay, because all Paul is talking about here is homosexual behavior. Meaning you can have same-sex attraction as a Christian, but it's not a problem so long as you don't act on it. Uh, for instance, if you've heard the term gay Christian lately, uh, depending on the denominational and doctrinal circles that that's set in, this is what they may mean by that label. They're not saying that they're a practicing homosexual. Instead, they're saying they're a Christian with same-sex desires, desires they realize they cannot change, but which they have chosen not to act on out of their devotion to Christ. Essentially, they're a celibate homosexual. As you might imagine, this particular passage is key in this discussion. Because after rattling off the list of sins, or I think you might even say sinners, right? That's fairly key in this passage. These are sinners that Paul lists here. He says in verse 11, And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The implication is that while these types of people shall not enter the kingdom of God, and while the Corinthians themselves once were this way, they once could be lumped into one of these groups, that they are this way no longer. Thus, some type of change in this area is clearly possible, according to Paul. The question is, what? 
What kind of change is Paul describing here? Is he just talking about their actions? Or is he going deeper? Is he getting into their inner desires, perhaps? In order to answer that question, I think you have to look at the context. Unfortunately, we have a tendency to want to break up the Scripture into sections when the truth is that they often weren't written to be read that way. This is particularly true of Paul's letters. While Paul does have a tendency to have a very logical order of thought, which can even be broken down into sections at times, the fact remains that these were letters that were written to be read in one sitting. So when we break these letters up into all these sort of self-contained subunits of thought, we sometimes miss how they fit into the overall flow of thought that's developing in the course of the letter. And I think this can most definitely be the case here. We read this passage out of its context and miss its place in the overall flow of thought. If you notice here, the list that Paul describes in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 6 is almost identical to the list that he provides in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 5. Really, the only difference is the order and the addition of a few different expressions of sexual immorality and greed, that is, adultery, homosexuality, and theft. You might notice as well that in chapter 5 he's talking about actions, in chapter 6 he's talking about people. They are people who perform these actions. But do you guys see this? There's a connection here. Paul hasn't really changed subjects since chapter 5, not completely. He's still running through the same flow of thought. The question is, why does he add this section in verses 9 through 11? What role does this passage play in Paul's developing flow of thought? And the answer is, it provides a theological foundation for the particular actions that Paul is prescribing. In other words, why does Paul say, separate from the sexually immoral and greedy, Answer, because the sexually immoral and greedy won't inherit the kingdom of God. Why does Paul say, stop suing one another? Answer, because thieves and swindlers won't inherit the kingdom of God. Why is he about to say, stop visiting prostitutes? Answer, because adulterers and homosexuals will not enter the kingdom of God. Do you see this? The whole point is that these actions are inconsistent with those who are destined to enter into the kingdom of God. So now here's the million dollar question that you need to answer if you're going to grasp both the meaning of this passage and its implications for things like homosexuality. And that question is, what does Paul mean when he says... And such were some of you. Is he implying that the Corinthians no longer struggle with these types of sins? In other words, is he saying, separate from the incestuous man because Christians don't do this? And his incest is a clear sign that he's not a Christian? Really think about it for a minute. What, is that what Paul is saying here? Think about what's happening at the beginning of chapter 6. Of course, this morning's passage, it comes on the heels of verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6. What's going on in those verses? 
What is even the thought that causes Paul to erupt with this question, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They're suing each other, right? Paul is telling them that it would be better to suffer wrong and be defrauded than to take their case before the secular courts. And then Paul observes, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. That's when he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And so do you think when Paul says, with respect to the greedy and the swindlers, in such were some of you, you think he's referring to that as a strictly past tense reality? Is he saying that at one time they were swindlers, but that they act this way no more? What about the issue that he's about to address? Prostitution. In the very next passage, Paul is going to explain to the Corinthians why they shouldn't visit prostitutes. Do you think that's because they're not visiting prostitutes? Or because maybe they are? Why do you think he's taking the time to tell them, flee sexual immorality? You think it might be because some of them still struggle with sexual immorality? Can you see what I'm getting at here when Paul says, and such were some of you? His point is not. And let me say this one more time. His point is not that the Corinthians have repented of these sins in the sense that they're all now squarely in the rearview mirror and that they don't struggle with them anymore. Rather, he means it in the sense that in Christ, they have now become something else in God's eyes, and so they need to be now begin to live up to this new calling. If you're familiar with the phrase, simul justus et peccator, that might be helpful for understanding Paul's point here. Simul justus et peccator, that's a Latin phrase that means at once saint and sinner. And it was a phrase originally coined by Martin Luther to describe the status of the Christian in Jesus Christ. They are at the same time a saint and a sinner. Meaning they are both justified in the sight of God and fully clothed with the righteousness of Christ such that in God's eyes they are now presently already righteous. God looks at the Christian as if they have performed all the righteousness that Jesus performed in the flesh. They are holy in this sense. They are saints. And yet at the same time, they also still struggle with sin. That struggle with sin doesn't mean that they are not really righteous. No, they really are righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ. And yet the truth is that their actions have still not caught up to what they've become in Christ. And this seems to be what Paul is driving at here. He's not saying that they don't struggle with these kinds of sins anymore. Rather, that he's saying that in Christ, they have received a new identity, and now they need to begin to live up to this identity. They need to separate from the incestuous man. Why? Because that's not who they are anymore. So they shouldn't accept this sin in the body of Christ. It actually has less to do with what the man's sin says about him and more about what it says about them. By continuing in fellowship with him, they're acting like, this is who they are, that they're okay with this. 
And they shouldn't be okay with this because that's not who they are now in Christ. They need to stop suing one another. Again, why? Because that's not who they are anymore. At one time, they might have thought it okay to use the law, to defraud other people, but that's not who they are now. In Christ, they have become something else, something new. Same with prostitution. At one time, they may have thought it okay to engage with prostitutes freely. But in Christ, something new has happened that makes this type of conduct completely inconsistent with who they are. This is the overall thought that's driving so much of Paul's instruction. If you notice, you can even see this concept at different points uh, scattered throughout this passage. Uh, For example, I don't know if you caught this, but back in chapter 5, as Paul spoke about the need to separate from the incestuous church member, and as he compared the Corinthians to the bread of the Passover festival, he said, verse 7, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Do you hear that? He tells them to become unleavened. Why? Because they really are unleavened. In Christ, they have become unleavened, and so now they need to remove this individual so that their conduct would begin to match their identity. You think about the section on civil lawsuits at the beginning of chapter 6, and why does Paul say, this isn't right, you shouldn't be doing this? You see the answer in verse 2 when he says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Again, do you see that? There he's telling them not just to live up to what you are, but even in a sense, live up to what you're going to be. There's still a sense in which the, their, this future status defines what they are now and should affect the way they live now, and they need to live up to it. The same thing is going to come out in the next section as well. Paul talks about the problems with prostitution. And as he does this, he's going to remind them. Verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ to make the members of a prostitute? Never. The idea is that because their bodies already belong to Christ, they now need to live in conformity with this reality. This is the tone throughout this entire section. In fact, I think when you really get down to it, it would even seem that so many of the Corinthian struggles are actually rooted in a misapplication of this same concept. Meaning the reason why they're struggling with sexual immorality and the like is because they think that because this is who they are in Christ, that it no, matter, no longer matters what they do in the present. This is why they're boasting about the man's incestuous relationship. We'll see it's partly why they're so free with their own sexual immorality in the next passage. Is because they think, look, the gospel means that what we do now doesn't entirely matter anymore. God doesn't look at us that way. That's not who I am in Christ. God sees me clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Anything I now do in the flesh is really just an expression of my fallen nature, my flesh, not me. In the words of Paul in Romans 7, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So who cares, right? Basically, they're taking Pauline theology to an extreme. And they're interpreting it as a license to sin. 
And what Paul is doing is correcting this misunderstanding by telling them, no, the idea is that in Christ, you are no longer these things. And so actually, because of that, you need to make every effort not to live this way anymore. Basically, he's urging them to become what they are. Let me say that one more time. What this passage is, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. What this passage is, is an exhortation to the Corinthians to become what they are. It's not a passage intended to communicate the victory that Christians can have over sin, though, of course, I do think Christians can have victory over sin. It's not a passage intended to communicate the concept of lordship salvation, at least not in the sense that those who continue to abide in ongoing unrepentant sin are not Christians. Though, again, I do think that's an entirely biblical concept. Rather, this passage communicates lordship salvation in the sense that what Paul is saying here is that if you become a Christian, then you are already under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so you need to make every effort to live up to that calling. It's an exhortation, not an explanation. And such were some of you means Christ has made you new. And so now you need to act like it. Just so you know, this is ultimately why I can't subscribe to the concept of the gay Christian. It's a contradiction in terms. Personally, I don't really take issue with the claim that those who struggle with homosexual desires uh, may wrestle with them innately. Now, again, personally, I don't think that's what the data actually points to, um, that this is a strictly genetic issue. I actually think that the, the data points in the other direction. I don't think that's been proven at all. I'm just saying that even if it were the case, that there were a particular bent in that direction, um, possibly even from birth, it wouldn't be enough for me to go see the Bible's wrong. We're told in the scriptures pretty plainly that our sin nature has been passed down to us from Adam. So it wouldn't really surprise me if we all have inclinations to particular types of sin embedded in our very flesh. Of course, that's not to say that we have to act on these inclinations, that we can't do anything but sin because of that particular bent. It's just to say that this means some of our temptations are very much internal. That trying to escape them is as difficult as running from our own shadow. So that's not a hill I feel like I have to die on. If there are some Christians with these tendencies who want to say, look, I know I can't act on these desires, but I really don't have any sort of attraction for the opposite sex, so I'm just going to remain celibate unless or until something changes, I don't really take issue with that either. I actually think there's a fairly mature response to these types of desires. But what I do take issue with is one of these Christians accepting the label Gay Christian. Homosexual activity is a sin. Plain and simple. The scripture is very clear on this. And so for a Christian to just sit back and accept this aspect of their thinking as part of their identity, as if, as if this is part of who they are, is completely wrong-headed. It would be like, like a heterosexual Christian who struggles with their own set of lustful thoughts, saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a fornicating Christian. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't act on my desire to fornicate, but at the same time, this is just a part of who I am. It's, it's, it's in my thinking, it's just never going to go away. 
we would never accept this from the heterosexual who struggles with their own set of internal corrupted desires. So why would we ever accept this from one who struggles with homosexual desires? Now, I do want to be clear here. I'm not saying that this necessarily means that the one who struggles with these desires necessarily will change completely this side of heaven. I'm not saying, of course, that they can't change either. There are most definitely individuals who, for one reason or another, at one time struggled with these desires who would now tell you that they've changed. I'm just saying that none of us will have all of our sinful desires completely eliminated this side of heaven. And so for some people, that may be the particular set of desires they struggle with until the day they die. Listen, that's just how it is for all of us. We all have desires that we want to see put away, which we can't seem to kick. That's just the nature of the Christian life, this side of heaven. So I'm not saying that a Christian cannot struggle with these desires and still be a Christian. They can what I'm saying is that in spite of what we may struggle with, that's not who we are now. Even if it's only in heaven, we all will one day have our sins completely eliminated and our character will then completely conform with our identity in Christ. And so we are to now live in light of that reality, not our present circumstances. I think this is what Paul would say to those Christians who would say, I'm gay. He would tell them, no, you were gay. No, but you don't understand, Paul. I still have this desire, and it's so strong that I don't know that it can ever change. Based on what Paul says here, I think he would answer this objection by saying, listen, I understand what you're saying, but I think you're missing the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice and what it means not only with respect to your future and what you will be, but with respect to your present and how God views you right now as well. In God's eyes, you're not a homosexual. You may still wrestle with these desires, but that's no longer how He sees you. Instead, He sees you as if you performed all the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This sin has been cleansed. And so instead of identifying with your past, you need to start identifying with your present and even your future. And if someone were to say, but I don't want to do that because I actually like this part of myself. I don't want these desires to ever go away. Well, now, now we have a problem. Because as Paul says in verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You can't embrace these tendencies whether that be homo or heterosexual desires or other forms of covetousness or licentiousness, be that greed or drunkenness or reviling, since in the words of Colossians 3, 6, on account of these the wrath of God is coming. God rejects this, these things. He plans to condemn them. So you can't expect to have a relationship with God while still openly embracing the very things he intends to destroy. As we'll continue to see in next week's message, this is partly Paul's point in this passage. True Christians don't embrace the things that God rejects. They put them away. That doesn't mean they may not still struggle with these sins, but it is a struggle. 
It's just like the point that Paul was making at the beginning of chapter 5. We don't boast over our sins, right? We don't celebrate them. No, we mourn over them. That's partly what distinguishes the Christian from the non-Christian. It isn't the absolute absence of sin in their life, but their attitude towards it, their discontentment with it. Their repentance unto faith in Jesus Christ means they are no longer satisfied with the presence of sin in their life. Now again, this doesn't necessarily mean that we have to live in abject shame and sorrow over these sins because there's a sense in which we are no longer this way, right? And this is Paul's whole point here. Uh, This is what the Corinthians are misapplying. Uh, The fact that we are in Christ means we have been forgiven of our sins and we really are righteous in God's eyes. God doesn't see us as this way anymore. And so in a sense, neither should we. And this means that we can celebrate what we are in Christ, not lament over what we were, what's in our past. So we don't accept these aspects of our person either. Just so you know, in spite of their struggles, Paul is affirming that the Corinthians have done this. They have mourned in this way. There may be some deficient aspects of their theology which are leading them to think that some of these things that they're doing are not actually disobedience, but in spite of this, it would appear they truly do want to be obedient to Christ. They're not willing to accept any aspect of their life that they know to be in disobedience to Christ. They just misunderstand partly what that means. This is why he says to them, and such were some of you. They no longer accept these kinds of sins as normative for the Christian. And it's on the basis of this idea that Paul is exhorting them. So now, this is how your application is out of whack with who you are in Christ. So now become who you are. Next week, we're going to come back to the second half of this passage. And in this part of the passage, we'll explore what has happened to us in Christ. It's a message that I'm really looking forward to because it means that we get to spend some time feasting on the grace that's been offered to us in Jesus Christ. That's always a pleasure, right? To simply remember who we are in Christ and to remember what God has done for us. And my hope is that as we dive further into this subject, it will only become more and more clear how these realities should both guide and transform our interactions with the world. In the meantime, I would encourage you to prepare for that message by reflecting on this question. That question is, where is my conduct inconsistent with who I am in Christ? Where is my conduct inconsistent with who I am in Christ? I know I'm focusing on a particular sin in this list to illustrate my point this morning. I hope you understand the only reason I do that is because I really feel like I can't not address it. (laughs) Um, Personally, I kind of wanted to skip the homosexuality discussion entirely because it's not really Paul's focus here. It was not the controversial issue for Paul that it is for us today. For him, this was a fairly straightforward issue, and so he only mentions it in passing. I'd like to do the same, but obviously this subject is controversial enough for us today uh, that I almost feel like it would distract from the main point if I didn't address it. 
I think some of you would probably be sitting there wondering, you know, when is he going to get around to discussing homosexuality? And so I thought, well, let's just get this issue out of the way this week and, you know, use it to illustrate the main point that Paul's trying to get at. And the next week we'll get around to the parts that really should hit home with our own sins and struggles uh, without that distraction getting in the way. And that's what we're going to do next week. And in preparation for that message, I want you to ask yourself, where is my conduct inconsistent with my identity in Christ? There are two ways we can ask that question. On the one hand, you may already be aware of instances where your conduct doesn't align with who you are in Christ. And in those instances, this passage can challenge you. It can encourage you to put away this former manner of life and fully embrace what you've become in Jesus Christ, what you already are. I know this passage has already been ministering to me in that way this week. But there's another sense in which this question can be asked as well. And that's with the intent of exploring what elements of your life you think are already in line with this identity, but which aren't. As I think you've seen, this was really so much of the Corinthians' problem. Their willingness to be obedient to Christ was there, but their understanding of what that meant was not. And so they were embracing all kinds of activities that we would find appalling, but which they thought were entirely consistent with the gospel, and they thought it was consistent to the degree that they were even willing to challenge Paul and saying that he didn't, was the one who didn't get it. Listen, what aspect of your life might fall into this category? I'd encourage you to spend some time reflecting on this question, and then we'll see uh, what the rest of this passage might turn up next week. Let's pray.